Yon Ferrier joined Gulf Keystone Petroleum in June 2015, he took over a company on the edge of bankruptcy and in the middle of a war zone. 90 months later, he's still with a much-changed company, though the same can't be said for many of the people who once called themselves Gulf Keystone investors. I'm Alex Newman, and for this episode of the Extraction Podcast, I'm joined in the studio by Gulf Keystone Chief Executive Yon Ferrier, and we're going to be talking about debt, the oil price, a potential sale, and operating in one of the most dangerous parts of the world. I'd like to focus on the future as much as possible in this conversation, but inevitably a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this podcast may have seen huge dilution. Do you have a message for the investors who may feel let down by what's happened over the last few years? Well, that's a tough question to start with. Um, the message is, is I'm here with a passionate belief in, in the company and the asset, having gone through a very difficult last 12, 18 months addressing the the situation the company was in, the the extraordinary amount of debt that we had, the, as I called it when I first joined, the perfect storm of all the issues that was hitting not just us, but others in the area, such as oil price, ICES, refugee crisis, and so on. That combined with our debt, though, put us in an extremely difficult situation. And um, we looked at every which way to to rescue the company uh, just after I joined. Some people say, well, why on earth did you join a company in this position anyway? And um, I was looking for a role like this, looked at a number of companies, and the challenges, well, most of the challenges at least were clear to me uh, mm. coming into the company. You, you, only, you can only learn a certain amount. But under, underlying it all was the fact that there was a fantastic asset at the core of this. That remains the same. And so having got through this pretty ghastly t- 2016 uh, we're now in a position uh, to to actually rebuild the company. So it's it's probably very little consolation indeed for many private investors. And, and I've expressed this, you know, my sympathy before for their position. But we're going to do everything we can now to rebuild value in the company. And that's exactly what I'm focused on at the moment with my team. Okay, so bring us up to speed. So in, in October, you did this debt of equity uh, swap. That was when it was completed, yes. That was when it was completed. Mm-hmm. Can you explain sort of what that was for in terms of restructuring the balance sheet, perhaps for people who, who, who may not have been aware of the exact Right, I'll try and give a, a sort of a layman's interpretation of, of what happened. We, as I was joining the company, uh, share price was, I think, around 30 pence. I can't remember exactly, but say around mid-30 pence. And with the um, with the outlook for the region and oil price and so on, I'm afraid the share price just steadily declined uh, uh, in my first sort of six months there. And with the lack of certainty on payments, you know, we were producing, we were spending money every month to maintain an operation. There's no money coming in. I mean, that's a pretty basic equation for disaster in a, in a business. So our share price, you know, fall was accelerated, if you like, by by circumstance and the fact that, you know, there was this uncertainty of of any money coming in. We uh, normally, you know, a a person aboard who's running a a public company has a duty, you know, its primary duty is to its shareholders. But one thing I realise in in this process is that actually there's a certain point at which you have to consider your creditors. And at a certain point for us, it was clear that we we had to look after the people that had lent us money, the bondholders. Uh, we also had uh, an existing uh, restriction on the business, a, a covenant, if you like, that we had to keep a minimum of $32.5 million in, in, in the bank, um, uh, sort of earmarked for our creditors. Uh, and if we if we were to go beyond, you know, below that level, we would basically be in default so we model basically we try to model what the outlook for the business is like and i'm not the finance expert you should really have my cfo talking about the details of this but 
you basically run scenarios is what is likely to happen in the business. And one thing I did not want was to have a strategy based on hope. So at the end of last year, uh, sorry, the end of 2015, we couldn't just say, well, you know, the oil price is going to go to $120, everything's going to be okay. You had to look at what the, the smart people were saying about oil price and say, in that light, with the risk on payments, what's the outlook for the company like? And it became pretty clear in around uh, Christmas 2015 that we would have to do something radical to address the debt. In the background, we had tried all sorts of things as well in terms of doing a deal. Um, We had running from the beginning of 2015 something called a strategic review, which is really code, I suppose, for trying to do an M&A deal. So the idea of somebody farming into the business, taking a big share of a, a meaningful share of our equity, that could have been really attractive then because, you know, an injection of money would have given us um, much more breathing room, you know, strength in our balance sheet. It would have given us options, Mm. but that didn't happen. I mean, there was actually in the last 18 months or so, there've been very, very few deals in the oil business, particularly cash deals. So we tried, we had the data rooms open for a long time, put a huge effort into it, attracted a number of very sensible potential industry counterparties, but nothing happened. So you're left then with the situation of you've got, shareholding uh, market va- uh, capitalization of a certain amount and then you've got this we had 600 million of debt huge amount of debt for a company like us and that was all maturing in april this year april 2017 in other words in april 2017 you would have to effectively be able to cut a check for the whole lot to settle the debt so you c- could continue trading and it wasn't going to happen so we then enter into a lengthy um uh, a very lengthy process uh, where you it almost play a role as a broker between the shareholders and the and the debt holders right. to try and affect basically some kind of a settlement where the debt holders become shareholders. And sadly, in this case, the shareholders were left with very little. We got 5%, which is maybe better than we thought we could at the beginning. But of course, it's, it's very little consolation for those that had a share and ended up with 5% of it. But I'm afraid that's just, you know, the situation we were in. The alternative was going bust. Sure. We wouldn't be having this interview today, most likely, if we hadn't done something like that. So your debt, I mean, your debt's been uh, vastly reduced by about half a billion dollars, is that Yeah, right? well, yeah. we had 600 million of debt. Yeah. We now have 100 million yeah. of debt, which is very manageable for a company of our size. And our CEO is comfortable to have that level of debt on the balance sheet. And so, we have flexibility around the coupon on that as well. Uh, but it's absolutely manageable within, within cash flow. And it's, it's in line with the industry, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. So... So speaking of cash flow, which given this was one of the, the, the issues which exacerbated sort of heavy debt situation in the last few years, mm-hmm. bring us up to speed with where free cash flow is at the moment. Are you, you've got a bit more, bit more sight on what's coming into the till? Totally. Uh, I mean, whilst the stories of Kurdistan have been you know, troubling for many, actually the payment record has been excellent. Uh, up, up to at least um, the end of last year, we'd received you know, payments for over a year. 13 monthly payments, mostly around $15 million for us. There was a period at the uh, first quarter of last year when the Turkish pipeline closed, the payments to all exporters were, were reduced. But we had over a year of payments, which was pretty good. And we went cash flow positive for the first time at the end of last year. So that's the first time in the history for the company. Uh, so we are actually looking at a turnaround uh, uh, in the you know fortunes of the company in that respect. We because of challenges with uh, actually finalising the form of our invoices, because we still haven't affected the final amendment to the PSC, the production sharing contract that we want to do, 
we simply invoice the ministry $15 million on account, as it's called at the moment, which is actually not unlike the other exporters. Um, and we spend about 5 to $6 million a month. So that's, that's a neat equation. Uh, right now, we have over $100 million of cash in the account. We have 100 of debt. So pretty comfortable position. And with the with a c- continuation of payments from the ministry, we can fund our near-term work programs and even mid-term work programs in, in terms of taking the company's production up, which is a great position to be in. The, I mean, the other element to this, and it's the crucial one really, is that mm-hmm. the you know the oil price is picking up a little bit as that well. That doesn't since, do uh, any harm at all. Yeah. Indeed. So um, can you just explain as well, the shaken oil is not quite quite the same when we're looking at say Brent crude no prices. it's not it's not quite the same thing can you just talk about the difference there yeah Brent crude if anyone you know has seen a glass of it is a is a you know mid-30s API uh, oil it's um, not that viscous you could um, you know you could sort of stir it quite easily with a spoon Shikan oil is heavy uh, it's but uh, around 18 uh, 19 API uh, it's a heavy oil it's got some sulfur in it um, but that's that's not atypical for for that part of the world um, we also have a huge amount of it, um, but yes, it, it's a heavy oil. So when it is, uh, if it was sold on its own, it would be sold at a discount. It's it's less attractive, if you like, to the average refiner. Although in certain refineries, there's a huge demand for it. But actually, what happens with us is we 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 truck our oil about a hundred kilometres to a point where we can inject it into the export pipeline, and then it's mixed up with all the oil that's coming out of Kurdistan. It's oil from Kirkuk, from Tauki and uh, Turkey, and so on. Uh, sorry, Turkey and Taktak, and then it's delivered at the Turkish coast, a port called Cheyhan, and it's sold as a blend of Kurdish blend or Kirkuk blend oil. And there, the oil ministry in Kurdistan makes an estimation of what component of that we're entitled to, because there's various producers who put in oil at grades of higher than Brent and lower than Brent, and uh, there's an, an adjustment made for all the for all the different exporters to get a share of this, and that's what we receive. So, if, if Brent's at fifty dollars a barrel, on average, what what would you, what would the price be for uh, for some for Shikan oil? Um, I can't really go into those details here, and it's a, it's a subject that's under discussion. But there is a, there is a meaningful discount uh, if you look at the the last documents that the company's put out. It's uh, in the mid teens of discount that we okay. we have to accept on this, and that that's fair enough because there's not there's a there's a discount at Chehan itself um, versus say selling a um, a Brent in the middle of the North Sea. There's a kind of a discount for the location. Uh, there's a quality discount for us, and then we have to pay various other fees like transportation. It costs money to push oil through a pipeline from from Kurdistan, you know, six or seven hundred kilometres to the Turkish coast. That's normal kind of tariffs that anyone would pay to to move their oil around. You have intentions to to ramp up production. We have a plant capacity at the moment of forty thousand, and we produce just under that at the moment on a, on a typical daily basis. Um, the the production actually tends to drop a little bit in the winter. It's actually you know yes, it's the Middle East, but we're in the part of the Middle East which is um, quite mountainous, high, and. Um, I was there just a couple of days ago, and just to the north of us, the mountains are covered in snow. It's almost like being in the Alps. And the ground temperatures at the moment where we are get close to freezing. And even though most of our uh, pipelines within the field are buried, the fact that things get colder actually slows production down a little bit. So we lose about five, 800 barrels a day of production due to temperatures. In the summer, when it's very hot out there, 40, 45 degrees centigrade, 
production is typically around 39,000 barrels a day. We haven't issued our final numbers yet for 2016. We're still in the process of uh, uh, finalising that with the government and our partners. Uh, we said that a guidance for 2016 was between 31 and 35,000 barrels a day and I'm very happy with the way that last year went in terms of production. Um, typically, the what interrupts our production and stops it being closer to 40,000 as an average is not our intrinsic issues with our operations. It's more pipeline interruptions. And last year we suffered uh, over a month of interruptions. There was um, terrorist actions shut the pipeline for a month, almost a month, uh, in February and March last year. And in the middle of the summer, we lost another week as well. And then other local interruptions, say with uh, truck drivers, problems, stuff like that, you know, can interrupt you for two or three days at a time. It's, they're not necessarily material interruptions, but when you add them up together, it means that you lose about 10% or even up to 15% per year of what we call deferments. Uh, we're not losing the oil, it's just being delayed uh, against uh, what we'd ideally like to be able to produce. There's an aspiration for $55,000 barrels a day. Well, yeah, I would like to think we can get there within a couple of years. We're still working on the plan for that. But let's be frank about things. We haven't actually invested much in the field at all for the last 18 months, two years. Not surprising, given that we uh, weren't getting paid or prices were very low. There was little commercial incentive to do so. If you don't invest in any oil field and you're producing it, uh, nature will take its course and production is going to decline. And we would face that situation this year if we didn't do anything. So the first priority for me is to maintain the plant at full capacity. And we have some very near-term objectives to do some simple engineering stuff, put in some pumps, uh, one pump first and then, then a few others, up to four pumps, and perhaps drill a new well at Shaikan uh, in the near term, say within the next 12 months, to maintain production at around 40,000. That is easily fundable from our from our cash flow. Um, it's you know it's about 70 million dollars gross to to maintain production at around 40, and you can add another 20 30 million dollars to take it up to 55,000 barrels a day. To take it to 55 means we just need to do some debottlenecking of the plant. In other words, make sure it's all working finely tuned as possible and bringing in some extra production kit. 55,000 barrels a day is also the theoretical limit at which we can export without a pipeline. That's using trucks. One of the things that scared the heck out of me before I joined the company was <clears throat> the fact that we produce oil and put it into trucks. And that's two to 300 a day uh, arriving at the plant, loading up and carrying it 100 kilometres. But 55,000 would need us taking 300 trucks a day. Beyond that, you'd need to be exporting directly um, via a spur pipeline from where we are into the national sort of trunk line. So the plans for that haven't been very clear from the government, but I was in Erbil just a few days ago and talking to the minister saying that we really now need to start planning in earnest. And uh, I'm hoping within the next few weeks, we're going to find uh, the right kind of engineering talent to join us to work on engineering a link from our plant to the, to the national trunk line. And uh, that should bring down costs. And it should also reduce the HSE uh, profile, if you like, of, of that exercise. It's much safer, uh, much more environmentally friendly to have oil just delivered directly by pipe into the pipeline rather than lots and lots of trucks on the road. Right. As we've discussed, as, as you just mentioned there, your, your main cust customer is the, the, the KRG, the Kurdistan Regional Government. Can you give me a sense of, you know, given that the KRG is a semi-autonomous uh, state, 
what's the what uh, how is the arrangement viewed by Baghdad? Are they happier than they have been in the past with the export arrangement? I mean, I, th- I think the fact that um, it, it you know, we've been continu- you know the region has been producing now by pipe for you know a year and a half now um, shows that there's obviously some kind of a pragmatic relationship between Baghdad and Erbil. I mean, this is an area I, I really shouldn't get drawn into. Regional politics are very complicated mm-hmm. here, but it works. And there are a number of different traders that that pick up the oil. Uh, in Chehan. So the system seems to be working. Um, and we, you know, I think all all people who went into the area knew what the the risks were, if you like, the contractual risks by, by working in this, um, as you call it, uh, autonomous region. Uh, but it, it seems to be working well at the moment. And we, we don't have any particular fears about that going forwards. You're not far away from a war zone. No. What, you know, how safe are currently are, are Gulf Keystone's operations? Very. Uh, in short, uh, the we haven't lost a, an hour of production due to security issues, mm. and that is quite remarkable. I'm asked this all the time, not by people in industry, by family and friends. Like, do you mm. feel safe? I mean, I was out there. I got back uh, yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, rather uh, Sunday night. I've been out there for just under a week, and uh, despite what's going on just 30, 40 miles away to the west in Mosul, it feels very safe and very calm. Security is obviously tight uh, wherever you go at airports and hotels and so on, but but it works and the uh, security is always handled with great grace and charm by, by the people out there. I certainly uh, never feel uncomfortable uh, when I'm in, in Kurdistan. And, and yet, you know, I've I've heard even from people working on the uh, the western side of the Shaikan field area that when you know there are explosions in Mosul you can feel it in the ground I mean that's how close we are and certain roads that go from uh, the city of Duhuk, uh, which is just um, 20 minutes away from us, uh, west of us, from Duhuk to Erbil, you know, I think you can see the the outskirts of Mosul on the horizon as you drive past. So you're absolutely right, we're very close to a extremely dangerous area, but we continue. Uh, along beautifully and that's largely down to the the Peshmerga the the Kurdish um, indigenous sort of security forces there who do an amazing job of keeping the place safe Um, and every villager that's around us and works with us um, we see as a kind of our own built-in security guard they're very loyal and protective of us and uh, they see us and our security as a priority. In December, Bloomberg reported that Sinopec had approached you for a potential takeover. I know this is a story which something you, you won't be able to talk about. Um, uh, but looking at the, uh, the, the, the management incentive plan, which was put out just a, a few days before, should we read into that that there is the, the onus on you and, 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 and Sami and Nadim is effectively to, to sell the company in the next year? Not really. Um, if we just talk about M&A in general, yeah. I, I mentioned... Uh, at the beginning of the interview here that a year and a half ago I'd have been very very keen to do something uh, to try and salvage some value uh, for the company and and put us on a stronger financial footing and weather the problems we were having we don't need to do that now we've got through the restructuring with with shareholder support we had an open offer that brought new money into the company we've been paid for 13 months yes we haven't been paid for October November December but we remain in a constructive dialogue, and I'm confident we'll get paid for that. So with money in the bank, uh, with a very strong balance sheet, the strongest it's ever been for the company, we don't need to do a deal. And that is not my focus. Mm. Uh, the 
I mean, I haven't talked to you yet about the, uh, a change I've made to the organisation, bringing in a new chief operating officer. But this is to demonstrate that our focus is now on the future. It's about investing. And actually, if you look at that uh, in management incentive plan, the real value comes is if I actually grow a huge amount of value in the field over the longer term. And that's what it's designed to do. Yoan Ferrier, Golf Keystone Chief Executive, thanks so much for uh, your time this morning. It's really good to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 